Dude. There's my something high. <laughs> oh, yeah, kids, middle church, right outside the back door there. That's grades six through eight. Uh, have fun back there. Good morning, everybody. My name is Pete. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm super glad that we can be together today. Church is the place where I go to grow in experiencing God's love, which then empowers me to actually love God and love people. May God's love wash over you today. Can you have an experience of that? Uh, today we're in the third week of a series called Suburban Idols, and we're taking a look at the things that we can be tempted to make more important in our lives than God. We're focusing on the communities around us, but the topics are going to be familiar with you, whether you're from the city, the burbs, or the countryside. And in this series, we've defined idols as anything we put ahead of God. Jesus said all the commandments in the Bible can be summarized with two commands, love God and love people. That's the most important thing in our world. And Jesus taught this repeatedly. And the Apostle Paul does a great job of talking in 1 Corinthians 13 about the priority of how well we love others. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had a gift of prophecy, and I understood all of God's secret plans, and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith, I could move mountains, but did not love others, that's people, I would be nothing I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, that's people, I would have gained nothing. This is how important loving people is to God. It is at the heart of priority number one. It is at the center of our faith and even more so because faith that can move mountains is nothing without love. This week, we're going to talk about an idol that has caused so many in our society and in our church and on this stage to put love in the back seat. Today, we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about politics. For decades, I followed politics more closely than anyone I met, political science major or no. I read every article that came out from the right and the left that had anything to do with the subject, and I loved to debate politics, first as a Republican and then as a Democrat. I always wanted to discuss issues with people who disagreed with me, and I have usually had more friendships with people from the opposite side than from the side I identify with. Uh, politics was an interest for me, but not of ultimate importance. About seven years ago, that changed. I started to buy into arguments that people on the other side of the aisle from me were morally depraved, far from Jesus, and either passively or actively harming other people. I started to take things personally, and it got in the way of my ability to be patient and kind. I have always heard one way you know that your politics have eclipsed your Christianity is when your political views all line up with one party. And I began to realize that it had become more true of me than it had ever been. And it all just felt bad. I wasn't glad about any of this. I don't want politics to be a reason for me not to treat people well, whether they agree with me or not. But I felt this inescapable pull toward the kind of scorn and mockery that pass for political dialogue in so many corners of our culture. And occasionally that stuff wasn't just happening around me, it was happening in me. 
When I started actually loving people less because of their political views, it was a deep sign that my interest in politics had gone from a passion to an idol. I am so grateful for a former seminary professor who gave me a book by one of his friends. It was about Christian anarchism, and your pastor's a Christian anarchist, I'm sorry. Uh, it's not that big a deal, and I don't want you to be one. The tenets of it are pretty simple. Nonviolence, because Jesus was nonviolent and taught it. Treating everyone like an individual instead of a group. We're all members of groups that help define who we are, but we're all individuals first. And opposing all selfish use of power. And that's people in both parties. Could I get an amen? amen? That's people in both parties. The author went to great lengths to demonstrate that my side of the aisle specifically was every bit as hopeless as any other side, and to call the reader to put God first in all things. And I decided to leave my party. And I know who I'm voting for president next year. I am voting for the head of our deacon team, the guy who helps coordinate helping ministry for those in need. Neil Copy for president. Could I get an amen? He was at first service. The reason I chose Neil Copy is because all the presidents you've ever known, all the candidates you've ever known, those are actual people. You don't know anything about them except what you've been paid to hear by them or by their opponents, right? Who do you know who can handle the pressure of having power and possibly come out of it uncorrupted? Neil for president. In the process of making these changes in my heart, I experienced something that felt like spiritual evil leave my body. I actually felt like something gross and slimy lunged out of my chest. And something like a new freedom came into me, and that's what I hope today will be for you, regardless of your political views. I hope that you will be able to put love first, not just today, but all the way through the horrors of the presidential election to come for all of next year. It is my hope that today's message will help you love God and love all people more than you care about whether Donald Trump or Joe Biden or door number three end up leading the country. The Bible has a ton to say about the relationship of political leaders and the people of God. We're going to take a look at a few passages. Let's check out a passage from the book of Deuteronomy. This is chapter 17, verses 14 to 20. Prophet says, You're about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us, like the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to select as king the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses, for the Lord has told you you must never to return to Egypt. This is military power. Horses at this time are tanks. Chariots are how you win in battle with other countries. First rule, no building up the military. Next, the king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. Marriages are how you strengthen your political alliances in this part of the world. You marry the king off to many different wives, and then those countries don't come invade you. This is about not using political alliances to secure your future. Uh, he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. He must not use power to get rich. 
When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he will learn to fear the Lord his God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. Humility. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way, and it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. Faithfulness. The heart of God for how we choose our leadership, and you know what? I used to think this is all about picking a king. We don't have a king. This stuff doesn't count. But what are they actually doing in this passage? Meeting together to determine their leader. If that's not pretty democratic, I don't know what is. This is the heart of God for how we choose our leadership. Choose humility, choose service, and choose faithfulness. Do you ever feel like you've really been able to choose those traits in an election here in the United States? To my way of thinking, we have maybe had a handful of chances in my lifetime across both parties. I can think of a couple guys from each. Usually it's more like this image. I love this image. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Cthulhu is the eldritch horror that lives at the center of all things and will one day eat the universe from the fantasy writings of the first fantasy sci-fi writer in the 50s, H.P. Lovecraft. And so often the election feels like I got to choose the lesser evil. And it got to the point where versions of this t-shirt are everywhere. Why choose the lesser evil? Let's vote for the horror that eats the universe in the end, right? Because people are just sick of choosing candidates they do not care for. I wish that we were not regularly faced with situations like this where both guys feel like they might be missing the mark. Friends, nothing about democracy requires you to choose the lesser evil. And it's not like this passage is alone. My favorite passage about our relationship with our leaders and how we choose them comes from 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to read the whole chapter. As background, Samuel is a prophet chosen by God who's been incredibly influential in leading and choosing leadership in Israel. And they've been led by judges, and these are folks appointed through the prophet by God. Some worked out well, most worked out pretty terribly. Here's verse 1. As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba, but they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you're now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they're giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. And so then and now, there is in our human nature a desire to have a leader. And we rarely are satisfied with the actual leadership of the actual king, which is Jesus. Our King, Lord, and Savior is God. 
but we have a longing for a human being. And a lot of times that longing is actually idolatrous. We're not able to trust and put our security in God who we can't say, see. And so we say, in order for me to be safe, in order for me to have what we need, I got to choose a person. And since I got to choose a person, I'm going to choose the lesser evil. At its core, we have a desire to replace God with a human version of God that ultimately will fail. Here's what happens, verse 10. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plow in his field and harvest his crops. And some will make weapons and chariot equipment. First thing the king's going to do is build up your military. Like God can't protect you, and so it's my job to protect you. Verse 12, or 13, the king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He'll take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it among his officers and attendants. He'll take your male and female slaves, which was a practice in this culture at the time, and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He'll demand a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from the king you're demanding. Have you ever begged for a different president or leader? Can I get some hands, please? Have you ever been like, oh my gosh, get rid of this dude, right? Oh God, would you please change who's leading things around here? You will beg for relief from the king you're demanding, but then the Lord will not help you. How often have we seen that this is where human leadership goes? I don't see anything in here that's not still a problem today. I don't see anything in here that's changed about how our hearts work and how often we go, God, you're my security, but I need some more security, right? God, you say you're going to take care of me, and I guess in theory that's true, but I want someone else to take care of me the way I want them to take care of me. When will we learn? Verse 19, the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord replied, do as they say, give them a king. And Samuel agreed and sent the people home. So for most of my life, I bought into the argument, I need to choose the less obnoxious candidate, the best available. And that never went well for the people of God in the Old Testament. Unsurprisingly, the king they chose, and almost all the kings thereafter, were disasters. What happened was it went the way of earthly power and putting power in the hands of human beings. Not only did having a king not protect Israel, did not, did not, ah, did not only did having a king lead to oppression and injustice and all the challenges here, having a king is what actually led to their downfall and obliteration as a nation, as their kings again and again turned against God and scorned God's protection and presence. There's something within us that doesn't trust God will protect us, and I'm sure you've experienced this feeling the insecurity and fear that come with circumstances like 9-11 or rioting nearby or the government abusing people just because of who they are, because of who the government is. 
In those times of insecurity and fear, there are always going to be groups of people and individuals who invite us to trust humans instead of God. And that is what politicians want, your faith, your trust, and your hope. And your money. Good answer. That was good. They would like that too, coincidentally. And God knows. Politicians cannot give us back these things. Human leaders cannot give us real faith, like faith in Jesus that's put in the right place. Jesus said in John 12 that trusting Jesus is trusting God. We are not called to put our trust in human leaders. And hope has actually been like the name of some leaders' campaigns. But where is our hope meant to lie? In Jesus. All of this is background for who Jesus was and how Jesus came. Jesus came into the world in what I have heard not Christian scholars call the actual worst place in the world to be born in 0 AD. His region had rebelled against Rome repeatedly, leading to horrifying military action, like the town two miles from Jesus' hometown, where the Roman government crucified every inhabitant, man, woman, child, and baby, just 30 years before Jesus was born. Do you think anyone was over that yet? No way. It was a poor place, the poorest in the world. It was a militarily oppressed place, and it was a dangerous place. It was full of revolutionaries looking to restore God's glory by killing Romans, and there were revolutions again and again. And it was full of sellouts, people who had power because they turned against their own people and worked for the oppressors, and they were given positions of power. Jesus did not come at a less political time than right now in America. Jesus came in a more political time. And so it has meaning that Jesus did not choose a side. And people put pressure on him to do it all the time. Jesus didn't buy into the dichotomy that you have to pick one group of people against the other. Jesus didn't let them bring issues to him and make him choose publicly whether he was with one group or the other. In fact, Jesus actively recruited Simon, a revolutionary member of the Zealot Party who wanted to overthrow the government, and Matthew, a tax collector who turned against his people and gave their names to the government so that they could take more money from them. Jesus' response wasn't to pick sides or even to step into the debate. It was to win people over to the actual real kingdom, the kingdom of God. There are a handful of times when people came to Jesus and insisted he make political statements, and they built up situations where it was going to be impossible for him to step out. And in those situations, Jesus every time responded outside of the political norms. Like the time someone come to, came to him and said, are you going to pay your taxes to the leaders who've been installed here by Rome? Because if you do, you can't be the Messiah, and if you don't, Rome's going to come kill you. Let's see how Jesus responds from Matthew 17. On their arrival in Capernaum, the collectors of the temple tax came to Peter and asked him, doesn't your teacher pay temple tax? Uh, yes, he does, Peter replied. And then he went into the house, and I think that's real funny. <laughs> uh, but before he had a chance to speak, 
Jesus said to him, what do you think, Peter? Do kings tax their own people or the people they've conquered? Well, they tax the people they've conquered, Peter replied. Well then, Jesus says, the citizens are free, right? However, we don't want to offend them. So go down to the lake and throw in a line. Open the mouth of the first fish you catch and you'll find a large silver coin. Take that and pay the tax for both of us. Fishing with Jesus was awesome. Every fishing story with Jesus is this fantastic story of provision. They're all money-related, you know. It always turns out good. Go fishing with Jesus. Uh, I love in this story, first Peter straight up lies to the tax collector. Of course Jesus pays his taxes. Wait, Jesus, do we pay our taxes? Right, he then runs into the house. This is par for the course for Jesus' disciples. They screw up more times than I can count. Then Jesus already knows what Peter's going to ask, and he has the solution. It is not to pay out of what we've earned, which is the point of taxes, nor is it to object to supporting the government and make a big deal about not supporting them because they're in league with the Romans. Instead, let's go fishing because the actual citizens of the actual kingdom are free. We are unconquered despite Roman governmental authority. And the tax gets paid by a fish. Stories like this make it hard to argue that Jesus is on one side or the other. And there are a bunch more stories like this. Jesus makes it clear his leadership is not right or left, progressive or conservative. His leadership is beyond earthly solutions that people in power are offering. Jesus' leadership is his own thing, and it is centered in God, not in humanity. And so I want today to be practical for you. What can we do to dethrone politics in our hearts? What can we do in a culture where treating people rudely because they don't belong to one side or the other has become the expected and often demanded norm? I think one important step comes from Psalm 1. And if this step is relevant to you, I think it's the most important step that you can take. Stop ever listening to the voice of anyone who is rude about politics. Not on TV, not in print, and not among your friends. Your call is to love people, and it's the most important call in your life. And 1 Corinthians says, love is not rude, period. You're called to serve people. You're called to serve bad people with bad ideas who are actively hurting the world. And that's what Jesus did. In Jesus' town, they had people whose job was to nail you to a tree until you died if you were anti-government or even if you stole something. They were soldiers. Jesus got to interact with some of those soldiers up close and personal. What did he have to say to them? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Anybody who thinks their politics are the answer for the world has no idea what they're doing. And you're called to love them, no matter how right or wrong they may be. I don't think it's a coincidence. The very first prayer in the prayer book of the Bible, the Psalms, directly addresses this. 
Verse 1, Psalm 1. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers. But they delight in the law of the Lord, and they meditate on it day and night. They're like trees planted along the river bank. Ri the river bank. Wow. The river bank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. If you want to love people well, which is the most important thing in the world, according to Jesus Christ, get out of the company of scornful and mocking people. The word here is translated as scoffers, scorners, and I can just tell you right now, no matter which party you're a fan of, you can turn on the television and find a whole lot of scorn and mockery going on. And that stuff used to not happen. Do we remember as kids when they had the, the doctrine that you had to let both sides have time and people were respectful when they talked to each other about politics? Is anyone old enough like me to remember that day? Remember when you could turn on the TV and you would see people debating ideas instead of calling each other names? Right? The law changed. The dialogue changed. And now it doesn't matter which side you lean toward. You're going to be invited to scorn and mockery against human beings. And the first prayer of God's people in the prayer book that taught God's people how to pray for something like 3,000 years now is God, help us avoid the company of mocking and scornful people. Because mockery and scorn are rude, and love is not rude. God does not treat us with scorn or mockery. Jesus did not treat people with scorn or mockery. And exposing us to these kinds of things affects our spirit. And then these things spill out of us, no matter how careful we are. If you have been scornful or mocking to people or about people based on politics, this sermon is for you. God is inviting you to repent, to change your way, and to do whatever it takes to get off that path. I have fallen to this at times, including regularly not too long ago, and this is not the path of Jesus. And I am sorry to God and to anyone here I may have affected because of my failure. You and I are called to the path of love, and love is patient and love is kind. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus says, You are especially called to love your neighbor who is precisely of another belief, of another culture, of another religion of another way of life. I don't say of another party because you're not called to a political party. We are called to allegiance in God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because that's where salvation comes from. Salvation comes through Jesus. Faith, hope, and trust are actually realized and reciprocated when we give them to Jesus Christ. That is where the actual, real leadership is happening in the world right now, right here on earth. Jesus Christ is the king. Another king is never going to save us. I was talking with my friend this morning, uh, and I was just cogitating how I might have enjoyed one president more than another. Do you have presidents that you enjoyed more than other presidents? You get what I'm talking about? 
And I always think while it's happening that this matters and that it's going to last. And then after each president, I see no improvement whatsoever that lasts. I have seen nothing last from putting our trust in earthly leaders. And I think that's the danger of this kind of idolatry. We're looking for salvation to something that can't even change things for one year after it's gone. That's the story of Israel in the Old Testament as well. You want to see the world actually change instead of just feel better for people like you for a minute? Put your trust and your security in the risen God. Put your trust and security in Jesus. Put your work and your advocacy and your heart and your time in the hands of the living God who can give them back to you even better than you gave them to him. We don't need leadership in security. We don't need human people protecting us and advancing our interests and making alliances and strengthening our governmental freedoms as if the government could ever make anybody free. We need leadership in service. We need leadership in love. And we need leadership in humility and faithfulness. And those things come from the living God. God loves us. God can set us free from the kind of human oppression and bondage that is often in here, not out here. God's leadership is about laying our lives down, not glorifying and seizing power. And so today is a day for repentance, and I am happy to lead the way. I'm going to pray twice today. I don't love it when pastors pray twice at the end. I'm not trying to fake you out, um, but I want to pray about repentance for this specifically. And if you have let politics supplant loving other people in any practical way ever, I just want to invite you to pray with me. Uh, God, I just want to apologize. Uh, I have let stuff get in the way of your love. I know you want to love people through me, and I know you've poured your love out on me. And I am sorry that I have let politics make me impatient and rude, scornful and mocking. And I ask that you would forgive me, God. I ask that you would take away from me anything where I am putting human leadership above yours. I ask that you would give me the freedom to honor and follow you with everything that I have, my heart, everything. I ask God that you would help me put you first. I ask that you would be ahead of every idol that I am offered for the rest of my life. Amen. I want to invite you to stand, and I'm going to read us our tips for this morning. I'll pray as we transition into worship. Worship team, you're invited to come on back up. These tips are something to read, pray, and do to put the word of God as we receive it today into practice. Tip number one is read 1 Samuel 8. As you do, ask yourself, uh, what's in this that's similar to what happens today? And my answer would be the whole dang thing. But the neat thing about reading the Bible and talking to God is that God can highlight whatever it is that you need to hear from God's word. Tip number two is a meditative prayer. Sit in God's presence and consider, have I looked to politics for something that is God's to give? Number one. Number two, have I mistreated people or groups of people because of my allegiances? And to whatever degree these things are true, talk to God about that. 
Tip number three, and this is a little bit like the tip last week. I loved Sandy's tip for materialism. Give something that you and another person would value away. And I've been totally thinking about doing that all week. I failed, but uh, I'll do it sometime, hopefully today. Um, I have a similar challenge for you. Do a good thing for someone whose political views are very different than yours. Why? God loves everybody. God loves everybody all the time. And like you, like me, you have a voice in your head that says, yeah, but not that person, right? That person's an idiot. <laughs> Why would I do something good for them? The answer is that person's a person just like you. They're probably an idiot just like you. And God loves them just like God loves you. Do something concrete, practical, and good for someone whose political views are very different from yours. I like to have a bigger prayer as we transition into worship and prayer, which are the most important things we can do when we gather on a Sunday. If you're on the prayer team, could you come up? We're short the women's retreat, and so it would be a great week to go ahead and come on up and pray for people, even if it's like maybe not something you do every week. Do we have anyone from the prayer team here? Got a couple. Thank you. Appreciate you. Uh, we want to pray for anything under the sun for you. Obviously, if you have been rude about politics and about people because of politics, today is a great day to just pray for repentance and for a change of heart. I had to spend time <laughs> repenting and changing my heart, and uh, I still invite God to continue to do that in me. And so you could come up and ask someone to pray for you, with you about those things, uh, but we would love to pray for anything under the sun with you. I had some personal prayer requests today. That's what I got prayer for. So God, um, this is just the time where we together, as your people, as your family, knowing we're loved, uh, just want to love and worship you. We want to pray, we want to sing, we want to affirm you are the king, you are the king, you are the king. We want you to be first, first in all things. Help us to worship you together, God. Amen. If you're visiting today, I'd love to meet you after the service. Uh, the team will lead us through the next couple songs in communion. God bless you. I'm so glad.